Do take your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 16, we're going to read from verse 10. Let's hear the Word of God. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple, from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was it, that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Well, people ask, sometimes ask me, is the book of Re Revelation relevant to us today? And uh, a moment's reflection on the world we live in should be enough, I think, as I'll try to show you from the text later, to demonstrate that its relevance is only too real to us today. Over the last two years or more, we have seen what nature can do to us. The pandemic is a work of nature. The virus is something that develops naturally. It's part of the natural realm in which we live, and we've seen how many people were affected over that period of time. And now this morning, as we, as we gather for worship, uh, bombs are falling in the Ukraine. Uh, missiles are being aimed at cities randomly, rather than merely one army fighting another army. And we're seeing what people can do and what governments can do to people and the damage that they bring 
Well, that really helps us as we move into this passage we're looking at this morning. You see, in these central chapters of Revelation, we are being faced with some very uncomfortable truths. The gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, which is a good thing and a happy thing. That's why it's called good news. Always has that uncomfortable way of intruding itself into our lives by calling us to repent. Repentance is to change your mind about something, leading to a change of direction for your entire life. So when I believe the gospel, I am, having been an unbeliever, I am repenting of my unbelief. And the gospel news is that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repents. This section that we're looking at begins with a, uh, Jesus, the Lamb, that is Jesus the Savior on Mount Zion, that is the heavenly Jerusalem, surrounded by those who enjoy his salvation, the redeemed of humankind. We find them singing the song of Moses and the Lamb, that is the song of salvation. They're singing it in their safe place, that is before the throne of God in heaven. In fact, we've been repeatedly being being brought back since chapter 1, being brought back to that throne in heaven. That's where our hopes lie as believers. That's where our future lies as believers. That throne of God in heaven means to me and you as believers salvation and life and hope all wrapped into one. No matter how turbulent life becomes, no matter how much our foes rage against us, our lives are ultimately safe, as the Apostle Paul puts it, hidden with Christ in God. Nobody gets to touch the believer. Nobody can snatch you from Jesus' hand or his Father's hand. And that's the good news. It's good news of salvation. Today is a day of salvation. Today is a day of opportunity for you. Today is a day of grace, which merely means a free gift is on offer to you today. And I urge you, if you haven't done so up to now, to come to the Lord Christ. And by receiving Him, believing in Him, find that safety, that certainty, that enjoyment that we have in Him. But days like today will not last forever. That's the message of this section of this book of Revelation. In chapter 16, we become confronted by the final chapter in the human story and seen it begin to unfold in a series of final acts. First of all, four bowls of wrath that belong together that are poured out upon humanity. They represent elements of nature. Just as a pandemic was a force of nature, these elements of nature are instruments through which God is judging all those who are in rebellion against him. The last three 
of the seven bulls of wrath are not so much aimed at individual people, they're aimed at institutions, political institutions, the forces, the very forces of deception and persecution themselves. It's interesting that it is the natural world that provides the, uh, the particular and actual plagues which are given to these last, uh, these last angels to pour out upon, nature, upon human beings, the world system. In fact, in the Book of Wisdom, the Jewish Book of Wisdom, it says, He will arm creation to punish his enemies. God will arm creation to punish his enemies. That's one of the lessons of this book. Now, we're going to look at these three last plagues together. The fifth, the sixth, and the seventh bowls of wrath take our focus away from people at large to the world system and its institutions. You can see that in verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. You can see from that word throne that it speaks of rule, authority, sovereignty, and in this case, world power. We've already seen that the beast, also known as the Antichrist, is the head of a global world power that the process of history is moving, according to the book of Revelation, moving towards globalization. Until the 20th century, people would have mocked at that and said, that's ridiculous. How can that happen? Well, we can see how it could happen in our day. But nonetheless, there is a movement towards globalism, and the Antichrist is the head of this global power Earlier on in Revelation, Jesus, speaking to the church of Pergamum, says to that church, I know where you dwell. You live where Satan's throne is. And by that, he's referring to the fact that Pergamum was a Roman provincial capital and a center for the imperial cult, that is, the cult of the emperor, where the emperor himself was worshipped. Now in Revelation, that place where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, might be Rome. It might be Philadelphia. It's a metaphor for the world and the world rulers at the end of history. Back in chapter 13, we're told that it was the dragon, that is, the ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, that had given his power and his throne and his great authority to the Antichrist. The throne then denotes the heart of this brilliant kingdom, this world system that has offered so much to humanity and in which humanity places its trust It is this kingdom which is plunged into darkness, reminding us of that ninth plague when the plagues fell on Egypt. There was darkness over the whole land. This pall of darkness 
produced a foreboding of death itself. This throne is the throne of the Antichrist, and it's Satan's master stroke. Somebody has put it like this. He, Satan, has invaded the whole structure of society. Society that was planned by God, but now it is perverted to Satan's own ends. From the very beginning of time, Satan has had a plan to unite all of humanity in opposition to God. That's what's happening at the Tower of Babel right at the beginning of your Bible. That is what's happening in Babylon right at the end of your Bible. The human system, that is human society, increasingly globalized, organized without any reverence or love for God, is being mobilized to serve Satan's purposes. This throne then represents the kingdom of Antichrist and is opposed to the kingdom of God. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the end towards which we're moving. It's not a comfortable thing to be told, but it's the truth. Our society, where society, this godless society, which, by the way, has achieved so much, this society that claims to solve your every problem, to save you from every disease, to achieve for you a safe environment in which you can live, to ensure the prosperous future of the planet, here this society is the society that is now to be plunged into darkness, into utter confusion. The plague of darkness that descended on Egypt was directed at Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, for rejecting God's word, for oppressing God's people, and for the idolatry, the worshiping of false gods. In fact, this darkness in Egypt was such that people were visually separated from each other. It says in Exodus 10, no man saw his brother. When I was a little boy growing up, it was still true that factories and homes uh, were heated or worked by means of furnaces that burnt coal. Coal was very effective at heating your house and for uh, furnishing the, the, the brickworks that made bricks and so on, the various factories. And that meant that from time to time, we had to endure fog. This was not just a simple, beautiful mist that you wake up to in an autumn morning. Fog, fog you could see about three feet in front of your face. But after school in Scotland, which usually by the time we left school at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon was already dark because you don't get very much light in Scotland in the winter. So it's dark and it's foggy. And sometimes you had to kind of feel away your way along the wall 
You, you didn't see where the street was. You couldn't see anybody passing in the street. Suddenly you'd just be conscious of a shadow going past you. You couldn't identify anybody. It was, it was, a, it was a thick darkness. You approach, I can still remember approaching the traffic lights at the, the last street that I had to cross before I got home. And you would be right up against the traffic light before you could see the light. You couldn't see cars coming towards you. Thick darkness. And it's terrifying. Scary. Although when you're young, the little boy, it's fun. Uh, But it's meant to be scary. Well, that's the kind of picture that's being painted here. The plague of darkness that hit Egypt was directed at Pharaoh for rejecting God's word. And it visually separated people. And therefore, it pointed people to the separation from the true God. People do not see God. They do not know God. They're spiritually in darkness. They wander around with no sense of direction or protection. It's a portent of outer darkness, the outer darkness of hell. And this spiritual darkness led to existential anguish. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish, we're told. That's a symbol, a, a metaphor for intolerable pain. And yet, what do these people do? Do they repent? No. They cursed the God of heaven for their pains and their sores, but they did not repent of their deeds. It made them think, but nonetheless, they didn't think. Instead of being softened, they became hardened. Instead of crying out to God, they cried out against God, blaspheming God's name. Instead of turning away from their works and turning towards God, they hardened themselves in in their unbelief. And their very mouths, their very tongues that were created to praise God were being turned against God to blaspheme His name. And the irony is, of course, that God is calling out for himself a people from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, and drawing them into his family. Now, in the context of Revelation, rejection of the church's witness hardens the world's opposition to God. So the picture has been painted that God has sent out his witnesses to every nation, all the tribes, all the peoples, all the tongues. But the more the Word of God gets out, the more the Word of God is spread abroad in the world, the more the world hardens itself to the reality of God. Now you can ask yourself the question, where is God's name most blasphemed among the nations of our world? I imagine that God is most explicitly blasphemed among the nations that have a racial memory of who that God is. In other words, the European nations, North America, those nations that were influenced for nearly 1,900 years of Christianity, those nations that have a history with God, are among the nations that are most blasphemous towards 
the name of God. And that just may be a guess. But I know this, that Daniel in his book tells King Nebuchadnezzar, the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he wills. Therefore he sees the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar built to himself shattered by the kingdom of God. Daniel describes Belshazzar's kingdom, that is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's successor in Babylon. And he tells him, your kingdom is numbered and it's finished and your dominion is going to be taken away and given to someone else. Here we come to the final countdown for the earthly kingdom. And with this sixth bowl, we see the gathering of a great host. The gathering of a great host. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah all prophesy that the final judgment will involve the drying up of the Euphrates. Although it's a metaphor and a symbol rather than a reality. There's, a, there's an allusion there to the drying up of the Red Sea. Let, let's put it like this. The drying up of the Red Sea allowed Israel to cross over and find redemption and salvation in God. The drying up of the Euphrates here allows enemies to come and results in the judgment of the world. That's the difference. And it's pictured for us in the Old Testament by Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus comes and uh, he uh, diverts the river Euphrates so that he can bring his army over and be right there at Babylon while King, uh, what's his name, Belshazzar, is having his feast and interrupts the feast and takes the palace. That's in the Bible as a description of what's going to happen at the end of history. Not literally in terms of fighting, but in terms of the facilitating of this final action in the history of the world. Babylon in the book of Revelation, is a code word for the world system. And the, uh, the closing up of the Euphrates is used in a figurative way to describe the forces of destruction that will be facilitated in their push to overthrow the world system. They will flock to engage in the last war. Barriers will be removed, obstacles overcome, because the fall of this present age is absolutely sure. Don't get too hung up on the kings of the East. That's figurative. They appear on stage not because they're actual kings, nor because they're good or holy. Simply, these are God's instruments, and they will work and act in spite of themselves. It's the real actors in the drama that you must notice. They're more sinister still. Look at verse 13. I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet these three unclean spirits like frogs. Why like frogs? Frogs were unclean creatures. These unclean spirits come from Satan. Satan, the author of all evil, 
the beast, the satanic political system, the false prophet, that uh, religious support for the political system that is Satan's work in the world. These come speaking words, propaganda, communication, language, speech, demonic, dirty, deceptive speech. As far away from Jesus, who is the faithful witness, as you can get, all his words are true and trustworthy. But Satan is a liar, Jesus said, and the father of lies. He is a deceiver of the whole world, says the Bible. Zechariah, in Zechariah chapter 13, God promises to remove the false prophets and the unclean spirit. The unclean spirits are the evil spirits. Jesus expelled them from people's lives, but the enemies of Jesus bring them forth. The false prophets and the dragon and the beast spill them forth in order to deceive the nations. This repetition, repetition of their mouth, this threefold repetition, reminds us of what we've learned already in the book of Revelation going backwards for to chapter 13, verse 12, there comes from the mouth of the false prophets seductive propaganda. Chapter 13, verse 6, from the Antichrist, there comes blasphemous pretensions of deity. Going back to chapter 12, 15, from the dragon comes from his mouth a river of lies, that is false teaching, with which Satan seeks to overwhelm the church of God. This evil triad, as I said, are likened to frogs because they're unclean creatures. This river of lies, this deception, comes through these unclean spirits from the mouth of Satan and Antichrist and the false prophet. As Dean Farrer puts it, we could call them embodied false prophecy or lying propaganda supported by apparent or deceptive miracle. And in verse 14, all this is made shockingly clear. We have a confirmation. They are demonic spirits. These are the fallen angels that spread abroad lies instead of the truth. They lie behind all the doctrinal error that comes to the churches. The Apostle Paul calls false teaching in 1 Timothy 4, doctrine of demons, doctrines of demons which people have embraced who gave heed to deceptive spirits. Or, or the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they are of God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. For as long as the devil reigns through the Antichrist and the false prophets, the whole earth, not just the church, is at risk, but the whole earth is the sphere of deceit and illusion. Don't be surprised if politicians lie through their teeth. Don't be surprised when newscasters don't tell the whole truth. Don't be surprised 
If you're deceived by a world system that is in opposition to God because by rejecting God, they reject truth absolutely. And truth becomes relative, totally relativized. It becomes what you feel, what others feel, rather than this being something objective that is true as opposed to false. Test the spirits. Before world's end, these demonic spirits performing signs will go abroad. And here's what they will do. They will assemble the kings of the whole world for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Hold on to that word almighty, even as we're doing this study this morning. That reminds us that nothing is out of God's control. Nothing is going to happen that he hasn't predicted, ordained beforehand. In response to Satan's lies, the kings of the whole world gather together in this vast international alliance. We've seen that there's so many references back to Psalm 2. And here there are again. The nations conspire. The peoples plot. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah. That happened when Jesus came. As the early Christians in Acts 4 prayed, uh, recognized as they prayed, that the nations of the world, Rome and Israel, plotted together to get rid of God's Christ. And now at the end of history here, in chapter 16 of Revelation, now at the end of days, in a global manner, the nations of the world are coming together, and they're coming together in order to destroy God's church. Now remember, all of the teaching of this book is for the church. It's a letter to the church. The threat of deception is raised by the Scripture with you and me in mind. It is we who are in danger of being deceived. It is we who are in danger of being caught off guard on that day. People sometimes say to me, is Revelation relevant? My answer is, yes, it's absolutely relevant. That's why it's in the Bible. You know Jesus. That's a good thing. That's a precious thing. But it would be very risky for you to know Jesus and ignore Jesus' warnings. And Jesus warned his church about being deceived, about being found asleep, He said, watch therefore, because you do not know when the master of the house will come. Be on guard, lest he comes suddenly and you find yourselves asleep. When his disciples, you remember, were caught napping. Jesus was praying, they were napping. Jesus said to them, remember, you could not watch with me one hour? When the world faces a pandemic and the possibility of nuclear war, the warm fuzzies that you get out of religion will not, will not help you, will not keep you going, will not protect you, will not solve your problems or soothe your soul. 
There is a great danger that the church will be found sleeping, which is why Jesus warns us in Mark 13, take heed that no one leads you astray. False Christs and false prophets will arise. They will show signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Get that. This is all done for your sake and for mine. The day will come then when the global powers of this world under demonic influence gather to do battle against God and his people at Armageddon. They will gather to oppose Christian people. The nations will be deceived into thinking that they're assembling to exterminate Christians. In fact, they will be sleepwalking into the great day of God Almighty. This is the language of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. The final battle in which God will decisively judge the unrighteous that Joel speaks about in Joel chapter 2. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it's at this point to reassure you and me that Jesus speaks to us. Jesus himself speaks to the church, speaks to us this morning. And he says this, Behold, I am coming. I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. This is the reality that finally triggers verse 16. They assembled at the place that is in Hebrew called Armageddon. The word Armageddon means mountain of Megiddo. Well, there is no mountain in Megiddo. Megiddo is a plain, a flat plain. In other words, we're we're not meant to take this as a particular place. Jesus' interruption here is vital to understanding the time of the end. It reminds us that Revelation is working with a heavenly perspective on what happens on earth. Its space and time is the space and time of the Holy Spirit, not our space and time. Armageddon will be anywhere where his elect are gathered, where the body of Christ is to be found. The beast will emerge where the church is assembled, which is where the final battle will be fought. That voice from heaven speaks to us. That verse is thrown in here for our sake. As Jesus speaks to the faithful in every age and tells them, there will come a time when the state will attempt to annihilate the entire community of faith. And this onslaught will occur on the great day of God and can come at any minute. At any minute. It's it's a call there for us, for us to be alert, to hold firm our faith, to shun compromise. Even the smaller conflicts that happen We are to remain faithful. Well, when the demon's mission is fulfilled, the nations unite as one in their evil purpose. All is now in place then for the final battle. The seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air. Into the air, that is the most universal element, isn't it? This is the air that we breathe. 
This is the air that sustains our life. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So these unclean powers poison the air of human thought and human speech. Maybe, maybe through the blogosphere or something like that. But they're, they're poisoning. They're poisoning. Their opinions are poisoning our minds all the time. And then we read, a voice, a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. Jesus said something like that on the cross when he cried out, finished. The work of salvation is done. The veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Salvation is accomplished and Jesus has done it all. And all we do is trust in him and it's all ours. But salvation has a dark side. What about those who are not saved? What about those who finally reject it? Jesus to them is not a savior. Jesus is the judge. This is the day of God. The God who has been described as the one who was and is and is to come. Only now he is no longer the one who is coming. Now he has arrived. God has come. And having come, there is now not any place or time for that great social, political experiment known as Babylon. Now the holy city is going to come down from God out of heaven so that there's no longer any space for Babylon. Coexistence, as there is now, between the city of man and the city of God, the human community and God's elect community, are now no longer tolerable or possible. That's what it's saying here. The great city split into parts. Cities of the nations falling, God remembering Babylon the great, making her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fleeing away, no mountains being found, hailstones pounding down on people. No remorse, no regret, no repentance. Everything that can be shaken is shaken so that whatever cannot be shaken may remain. The political social order collapse and disintegrated. False religion and godless philosophies like mountains vanishing forever. The seventh bowl sweeping away time and history, cities and civilizations, structures and societies of human rebellion. This is the final cancellation of the world order. The final erasure of man's arrogant pretension to topple God from his throne. Some of you are really old like me. And you remember Nikita Khrushchev putting the, the first Sputnik into space or whatever. We're going to go up there and we'll find God and we'll knock him off his throne. All he was doing was saying what every human being does in their heart. Every human being does in their heart. Armageddon is the end. And Armageddon 
will take place in Philadelphia, in Glasgow, in Moscow, in Beijing, wherever people are, wherever the people of God are. Armageddon will take place right there. But the city of God remains and his people are secure. Jesus says, I'm going to come like a thief. They'll not expect me. You'll not expect me. And it will be the end. It will be the end. Dean Farrar, one of the great Anglican theologians, sums it up like this. In some Mount Megiddo stands in John's mind for a place where lying prophecy and its dupes go to meet their doom, where kings and their armies are misled to their own destruction, where all the tribes of the earth mourn to see him in power whom they pierced. In the end, all opposition to Christ will fail and fall. Human institutions, once ordained by God, will cease to be. And the kingdom of our God and of his Christ will reign forever and ever. Can you be sure this morning that you are part of that kingdom that is coming? Have you turned away from your unbelief and turned to God? Have you taken Christ to be your Savior and Lord? And are you with us looking for that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, which may happen at any point, at any moment? And are you being watchful over your own soul? And are you being watchful for your own church, if it's not this one, your own church? as we wait that great day of God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would sober us. But in doing so for your own people, may we take those words of Jesus to be his personal word to us. Blessed is the one who stays awake. I have a great blessing for those of you who take this seriously. Jesus is saying the whole beatitude of God, the blessedness of God will be yours forever and forever. We pray in his name. Amen.